As we have just finished a four-week series on infant baptism, you had a chance to see what is hiding underneath the water, the mass that was covenant theology. So I designed it to be short enough, but to give you a big picture of Why is that we are baptizing our infants? And to talk about that, we have to talk about the covenant theology. It has so many implications, so many implications. And and though those are important, they are important topics, I thought it would be good for us going into the fall semester to be grounded and anchored in a book. And as you could see... A passage has been calling me uh, the past few weeks. Uh, That is Philippians chapter 1. Especially the second half of Philippians chapter 1. As you know, this is one of Paul's what? Prison letters. And you could guess why I was looking into that portion. I am sure all of you All of you, not some of you, but all of you felt the same way. Or even still now feeling the same way that we are like Paul in prison. uh, Limited in many different ways by the circumstances. So I was asking, you know, the question, how did he survive his imprisonment? As you know, for Paul to be in prison is like to put a wild animal in a cage. He couldn't go to places that he wanted to go to evangelize and preach the gospel. And how did he cope with that? So I was just meditating, just my own personal QT, quiet times, second half of chapter 1. So at the end of that four weeks of uh, infant baptism series, and I saw some of you inviting your friends during that series, and and they're not coming back. So so maybe this is a good time for you to invite your friends and family members. And by the grace of God, I am confident that this will do much good for your spirit. I don't know how long it will take. I don't know how slow or fast I will go. I don't even know if I'm going to go beyond chapter 1. But again, because this is God's Word, inspired God's Word. And as you know, Philippians, a short letter. One of the easiest ones written by Paul. So we'll see how God leads us in coming weeks, or maybe months. So if you would turn to that first couple of verses from chapter 1, as you can see, there are a couple of different translations. First one, let me read from our usual translation, NAS. Paul and Timothy, bond servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you 
and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. But the same passage from Legacy Standard Bible. This is a new translation still being done by John MacArthur's team at Master's Seminary, Master's University. But this is based upon the NAS 95. They are tweaking it. But they set out to do this translation, making a couple of promises. And I've been following them, the news, for, I don't know, a couple of years or now. A couple of things that they wanted to do in that new translation they are coming up with is that they wanted to put the covenant name of God in the Old Testament, Yahweh, and they're going to put that four-character or tetragrammaton that we call it as actually Yahweh throughout the Old Testament. And the second thing that they said they will do, and I think this will have um, implications for us as we go through the book of Philippians is to translate Greek word doulos or douloi that you have just seen from NAS verse 1 bond servants or simply servants into slaves. So a couple of promises and they are I think, still working on the Old Testament but they made New Testament and I realized that they made Philippians for free. So if you had picked up that translation PDF form, it'll be good for us, good for you to keep that in mind. And I'm going to compare this with NAS and see whether this would be a useful translation or not. But if on the way out, if you want to pick that up, it'll be fun. It'll be fun to read a fresh translation done by them. But let me read a couple of verses from that LSB with that translation philosophy. Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. I am sure you are familiar with the Philippians. And I am going to assume that you will read those four chapters at home and have working knowledge with it. It is my intention to go through this book verse by verse, at least chapter one. But I may go back and forth, assuming that you know this. As you have seen, this is a letter written by Paul, but he includes Timothy in the introduction section and he they are writing he is writing this letter to the church in Philippi think about that for all of us for adults we know but for younger people if you go to school and if somebody asks you are you a Christian and if you say yes and what kind of scriptures do you have in your religion you say we have the Bible and you want to Show, show the Bible to your friends, and they open it up in the New Testament, which has 27 books in it. But if you take our four Gospels and book of Acts, you have 22 letters, up to 22. Think about that. 
Old Testament is basically a historical book. Yes, there are different genres in it. But basically it's history. When you come to the New Testament, a lot of that New Testament is actually, they are letters written by people to churches. Think about that. When I was young, sitting in a church, when my pastor said, open it up to Romans, I didn't understand why we are turning to Romans. I was thinking, isn't Romans, are they, aren't they bad people? Why are we reading something by Romans? I, I, didn't, I had no idea. But today what I want to do is simply give us the introduction. This week I've written two sermons. I've written real sermon, and this was my introduction. It was getting too long, so I brought introduction today. My real sermon is sitting in my computer, which is really good. But to give you that 3D view of this, I think it is beneficial for us to ask those questions. Because Philippians is not a textbook. It is not a religious book per se. It is not simply teachings of someone, founders of religion. It is a letter written by a pastor to the church that he planted. And I want to bring that real-life situation as much possible into our discussions in coming weeks. To see and feel this and to apply this to our situation. To do that, we do not have to turn today to any commentaries. But simply turn to Book of Acts, chapter 16, where we have seen household baptism few weeks. So why don't you turn to that reference? I have given you entire Acts 16 because Apostle Paul is writing to the church that you will see in the book of Acts chapter 16. For all of us, we know what had happened in Acts 16, but for some of you to refresh your memory. But how did this church begin? Is the question. Right before Acts chapter 16, few verses up, do you know what had happened? What happened? Paul, Apostle Paul, just broke up with Barnabas. They fought. And Barnabas took John Mark, his nephew, and they sailed to Cyprus, his hometown, the island that looks like the United States. And he picked up, Paul picked up Silas, and now they are going inland, as you know. They, they are going to travel inland. They are not sailing, but go to inland. That's, that's the background. And as you go through, I may not, I'm not going to read every verse, maybe not, but you can follow me and see how this church, this, to whom this letter is written, has been has formed by the grace of God. So let me read Acts 16. Paul came also to Derby and to Lystra. Lystra, what happened? Do you remember? I mentioned it once. In Acts 14, Apostle Paul was stoned. And people thought he was dead and dragged him outside of the town and left him, thinking that he was dead. But he wakes up and he goes back to the town. And now what does he do? He goes back to that same town that 
where he was stoned. That's significant, isn't it? If you were stoned in flushing, and if a gang is waiting on you, you don't want to go back to flushing. But that's what Paul is doing. He's not going some new towns. He's going back to the town that they already started churches. And a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek, probably non-believer. And he was well spoken of by the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium. Verse 3, Paul wanted this man to go with him. Why? Because Apostle Paul, this is his method of training younger men. Probably he saw in him, young Timothy, uh, that he could become a good pastor. So he will take him alongside him, and young Timothy will see everything that Apostle Paul will do. As you know, Timothy, his son in spiritual sense. So Paul takes him. He took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those parts, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Why, why would he do that? Though the gospel does not depend on the circumcision, and he fights against the circumcision party, as you know, but for the effectiveness of the gospel. The Jews will not hear Timothy because he will be branded as Gentile. So for the effectiveness of ministry, he circumcises this young man. Obviously, as you have read in the first verse, Paul and Timothy, bond servants of Christ, and he is writing this letter and includes Timothy, hoping that Timothy's office will continue, that people will recognize him as still the pastor, and so on. So in the first few verses, he takes Timothy with him. If you go to verse 6, they passed through Phrygian, that is central Turkey. And if you have like a study Bible or something like that, it would be good for you to look this up. So they're already in Lystra and Iconium, which is central Turkey, southern central Turkey. And so they are moving west. Phrygian and Galatian region, and this Galatian region is southern, we believe. There are northern Galatia and southern Galatia, but they are still somewhere in the middle south. But look what happens to them. Verse 6, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Asia here does not mean China, but Asia here in more northern Turkey. After they came to Mycenae, now this is all the way to the west of Turkey, modern Turkey. So they were in central Turkey. They wanted to go up north, but they couldn't for whatever reason. Simply it says, forbidden by the Holy Spirit. So they go west. So now they're in Mycenae. They were trying now to go into Bithynia, which is again, northern Turkey. So you see the route. They were in the central Turkey. They couldn't go up, so they go west. So they're still trying to go up by Thenia to go up north again. Second half of verse 7, what happens? The Spirit of Jesus. Verse 6 was Holy Spirit. Verse 7 says the Spirit of Jesus, referring to the Holy Spirit, did not permit them. Why? 
It doesn't say. We don't know. But in God's providence, God wanted to send Apostle Paul and his team not to northern Turkey, but to the west. That's the providence of God. Look at verse 8. Passing again by Mycenae, they were in Mycenae, but they wanted to go up north. Passing by Mycenae, they came down to Troas. Troas is the port. A vision in Troas. A vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing in the vision. How does he know he was a man of Macedonia? That's, that was my question. How do you know? His clothing? His Hairstyle, we don't know, but he recognized that is a man from Macedonia. Was standing and appealing to him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. Macedonia is across the sea. Verse 10, that vision at night. Verse 10, when he had seen the vision, immediately... We sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to whom? Macedonians. A couple of things that we must notice here is this. Look at verse 8. Passing by Mycenae, they came down to Troas. But look at verse 10. When he had seen the vision immediately, we sought to go into Macedonia. So there's a change of subject from they to we. So we will assume this Luke, Dr. Luke who's writing this, has joined that, the team in Troas. There's a change. And from now it will be we, us. And Dr. Luke, that beloved physician, will report in verse 10, I like the way he says it here. He does not over-spiritualize and says, God told us to go to Macedonia. There was a vision. And what do they do in verse 10? They concluded that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. What does that mean? We assume Apostle Paul had this GPS voice. God is telling him to go this way, right turn, 100 feet, take a left turn, there's a house, go in, or something like that. There were instances like that probably too, and he has direct revelations from Christ himself too. But in this historical moment, where the gospel turns left to the west, going into Macedonia, which is a gateway into what? Europe. So Philippian church is the first European church. Had he gone to north and to the east, as we, have, as we have been saying, that the gospel would have gone to Asia. But he takes turn to the left. And in this moment, God is not telling him, Paul, cross the sea, Macedonia. They were blocked, moving, going toward north, and he has a vision. Maybe it was a dream in a trance. I don't know, we don't know. But they had to deduce from that vision that it must be God. This is what God wants us to do. So they come together as a body, as a team, and they talk about it, they pray about it, and they make that deduction and conclusion that it must be God telling us to go over the sea, 
to Macedonia to help them and preach the gospel. There's no conflict between hearing God's voice and that they're concluding that it was God calling them to preach the gospel. Think about this and what this means. Oftentimes, past couple of decades, Paul has been branded as successful church planter. He loves the city. They say that he moves, he moves between cities because that's a strategic center. And he became what is now as a city-loving church planter. It might be. You could see him in that fashion. But what you see is he has no strategy, per se. He has a desire. The team has a desire, certain directions in mind. But somehow it was frustrated by God, Holy Spirit, Spirit of Jesus. And the vision, and now they have to go west. All they are doing at this point is obeying. They do not have bullet points, strategies, and map out where the million people are living in this city. Oh, I'm Asian, so I have to go to east. You're European, so you go to west. There is no such thing. They are going out by the prompting of the Holy Spirit. All they are doing is obeying the voice of Christ. They don't have sponsoring denominations or network. They are simply moving by the direction that is said by God himself. They are obeying. They are obeying. And look at verse 12. From there to Philippi. They came to Philippi. Which is a leading city. It simply says in Greek, first city, prominent city, which is the leading city of the district of Macedonia. Did you see what verse 12 said? Who came out in a vision? Macedonian men. Macedonia is a region. But where do they go? To the city of Philippi. Did God tell him to go, tell them to go to Philippi? No. Was the guy in a vision from the city of Philippi? No. Macedonian. He could have come from all these different cities, surrounding region. But they are simply moving. And they come to Philippi, which is the leading city of the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony. And we were staying in this city for some days, telling me, that they didn't plan on staying there. We were simply there for a few days. Spirit of Christ forbade them to go up north. Through the vision, they concluded that they would go west, Macedonia. Still, they have no idea where God is leading them. They come to Philippi, and probably one of the reasons why they didn't want to stay would be that they don't have synagogues. They were... That was his strategy. Wherever they go, he wants to find a synagogue. But they, the city didn't have, telling us there was no significant Jewish population. But anyhow, we will stop right here and let me explain a word which will form, I think, crucial background for all of us in order for us to understand the uh, letter to the Philippian church. That word is Colony, verse 12. We could skip over that word. They came to Philippi and we could move along. But there is a description 
written by Luke, tells us Philippi, the city, was a colony, Roman colony. What does that mean? Roman history starts around 750 BC, before Christ, 750 BC, 53 BC, from a small village in central Italy. That little village will be attacking surrounding villages. That's 753 BC. Soon, they will be winning these little skirmishes. Not really a war, but skirmishes between tribes. But they will win. And they will set up kingdom. So when you look up Roman history, ancient Roman history, we think of a Rome as Rome as Roman Empire. That's what we are familiar with. But it began with kingdom. And they had few kings. Then it moves into the phase of Roman Republic. They didn't like these kings, strong men. So the leading citizens of that towns and peoples, they overthrew the kings and they installed a new system, Roman Republic. And then you will see it will become an empire. So kingdom to republic and empire. When the founding fathers of this nation, when they were designing a new country, where did get, they get the, all these ideas of what the United States will become? Not from the Bible. They copied mostly from Roman Republic. Idea of electing officials, all of those will come from Roman history, Roman Republic. And then it will become Roman Empire. And let me give you some insights into this. And I'm going to use a book by Mary Beard, SPQR. I always wondered how did they become so dominant a player in that region? Some of the things that Rome did as they were growing and they were expanding, she mentions about three things and I think it will be very interesting and helpful for us to know that. What made Roman armies so successful in the beginning, especially in the Republic time, was this. They imposed one obligation to the subjects that they just conquered to provide troops, Mary Beard says. These people were not taken over by Rome in any other way. They had no Roman occupying forces or Roman imposed government. So what they are doing is this. As they are winning these battles and wars now, they will say to the subjects, you need to provide us with one thing that is your men. And they will incorporate those men into their armies. So it becomes bigger and bigger. And that was something that the world hasn't seen yet. Only the Romans were doing this. And Mary Beard says this, the results may well have been unintended, but they were groundbreaking. 
For this system of alliances became an effective mechanism for converting Rome's defeated enemies into part of its growing military machine. And at the same time, it gave those allies a stake in the Roman enterprise, thanks to the booty and glory that were shared in the event of victory. Once the Romans' military success started, they managed to make it self-sustaining in a way that no other ancient city had ever done. We think of wars to, in this way, we, there are wars to take over territory. At the ancient time, at that time, much of the land west of Rome were unoccupied and they were not interested in expanding the territory. They were only after these prizes, whatever that they could provide. Profits. So they are not trying to gain territory. What are you going to do? Farm the land? No. But as you could see, it gave the defeated forces, people, incentive to join Roman army because now they don't want to die, but they want to be on a winning team. Why don't we, why don't we go and, and take more land and people and, and take them away from them? And as you have heard from her, they did not have to set up local government. So Rome, the Roman government, they are not sending bureaucrats. They are just moving fast pace. What that does is that the Rome began outsourcing many different things. They didn't want to stay, but they will outsource all these things, especially collecting the tax. And one of the things that you will realize in Luke 19, Zacchaeus, what was he? He was a chief tax collector in Jericho. He's not collecting taxes for Sanhedrin, but for the Rome. So what Rome, the Roman government, will do is to outsource all of that. They don't want to stay behind. But how efficient and fast in expanding that kingdom and now onto empire. Second thing that they did was this. To some communities over wide areas in central Italy, the Romans extended Roman citizenship. Sometimes this involved full citizen rights and privileges, including the right to vote or stand in Roman elections. 2,000 years ago, if you could tell me a country or region where there was an election, you would be hard-pressed to provide me one. Probably it would be all chiefs or kings and queens. But Rome, as you know, it has become a, a republic. So to be a citizen, uh, you could actually not only cast a vote, but you could run for the office. And they had, in the conquered territories, they had their own Roman settlements called colonies. That's where we have just seen today. Philippi was a Roman colony. Mary Beer says, A few had full Roman citizenship status. Most had what was known as Latin rights. But the implications were again revolutionary. Listen to this. 
in extending citizenship to people who had no direct territorial connections with the city of Rome, they broke the link between citizenship and a single city. In a systematic way that was then unparalleled, they made it possible not just to become Roman, but also to be a citizen of two places at once, one's hometown and Rome. So, in that republic time, the citizenship meant that it was no longer an ethnic identity, but a political status unrelated to race or geography. We think about citizenship that we read about in the New Testament from our vantage point. So it's easy to understand. But to talk about citizenship 2,000 years ago, and people wanting to be a citizen of Rome, I mean, this is really ahead of uh, all the civilizations and times. And you will understand in Acts 16, as we're just reading through, Apostle Paul, after they were beaten, they were letting them go. But what did, they, what did he say? You don't have to turn there, but 1637 he says, They have beaten us in public without trial, men who are Romans, and have thrown us into prison, and now are they sending us away secretly? No, he says. What did he say? He does not say, I'm a Jew. But he says, I'm a Roman. We are Romans. But you have bitten us and, and you, just want to, you just want to send us away? What about this becoming a background for us in Philippians, as you will see? Philippians 3.20, Apostle Paul says this, For our citizenship is in heaven from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Then can we assume, based upon that Roman Republic understanding of citizenship, of being a citizen of both heaven and earth? My ultimate allegiance is to Christ, but to become a good citizen in this world, and loving the city that God has placed me in, But all these backgrounds that we could think about. The third thing that would be helpful for us is this. What Romans did was, then that created problems. Ex-military personnel. As you have heard, the prizes were set in front of them as carrots. So, the legion's army, they will pledge their allegiance to whom? To their commanders, because his success is my success. We have to win this war so that I could get the prize. That creates problem for the now later on emperor. Because these legions, ultimate power, the manpower, they pledge their allegiance to their commander, not to the the emperor. But anyhow, Romans were the ones who invented what we know as pensions. So the leaders of the armies, they will now set a settlement package, preferably of land, 
at the end of their military service, which would give them some guarantee of making a living in the future. And the first emperor of now, the republic crumbled, and strong man came along, and now, as you know, the Rome will become an empire. The first emperor was Augustus, under whom Jesus will be born, under his uh, reign. But what Augustus did was there was a pension reform. Listen to this. He established uniform terms and conditions of army employment, fixing a standard term of service of 16 years, later on to 20 years for legionaries, and guaranteeing them on retirement a cash settlement at public expense, amounting to about 12 times their annual pay, or an equivalent in land. What happens in those times, the leaders will trick them and give them the land, but worthless land. So a lot of ex-military personnel will commit suicide or will have rebellion against the commanders. And also, Rome is a small city. So what are you going to do with half million or million strong men, all pensioners. You can't settle them in land. So they will export them to where? Colonies. They are not sending them to Gaul or Spain or Britain or something like that. Nobody wants to go there. So these colonies, as you see, Philippian church is a colony, Roman colony. What that means is they will have bunch of ex-military Roman legionaries, pensioners in that town. And, and Philippi was one of those famous towns. Putting that together, look at Acts 16, 12, verse 12. With that kind of background, from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia, a colony. Roman colony, but colony. Right, so Apostle Paul and his team, they come into this colony. Scholars say it had about 10,000 people. Roman colony will be a mini replica of Rome. The city structure will be a mini Rome. The forum in the middle, theater, amphitheater outside, a public bath, and a public road in between going through. And as I've said, Philippi is full of ex-military personnel. What does that mean? They may not be rich people, but they will be financially secure. They will have pensions and, and they are praying every day that Roman government will not go bankrupt. And all of those men will miss their glory days and military people cannot change immediately into civilian life. They will have a hard time serving 20 years. My grandfather was a um, colonel in an army for a long time. Once they serve decades in the military, they cannot adjust. They really have a hard time adjust into readjusting into civilian life. It was all about order. You obey. You don't think. You do what they tell you to do. And thinking about their glory days, and I could imagine so many men in that city missing arms and hand in the battle. 
PTSD, looking at all these bloody actions. And I don't know, so many of them could be in alcohol dependent, I don't know. Pains, chronic pains, those are the real life situations. And why is it Philippi? If you look up any commentaries, they will tell you it was named after Philip II of Macedon. And Philip II was the father of Alexander the Great. So, what does that tell you? They come into Philippi, named after Greek strongman Philip, tells me, tells us, this was a Greek-speaking city. Flooded now with Latin-speaking ex-legionaries settling in this city. Mixture of languages and cultures. It's a mixed pot, just like here. It's not too different. They say there were gold mines nearby. So this was a rich town. And through it, that Roman highway went through. Via Agnesia. It connects all the way to the Black Sea, which is Istanbul now, to all the way to Albanian Peninsula to the west. Entire highway uh, to go to Rome. So this is sitting in that highway. You could look it up. Still, you could see the pavement. So this is commercial city. Um, a lot of goods will move through ideas, as you know, people from all over the world uh, just mixing in this town. But also, these people will have aspirations. But they will never be a Roman, in a sense. They are not in Rome. They are in a province. And Romans would always look down upon them as provincials. There would be garrisons in this town because of the importance of the city for protection. And history tells us 8619, there was an earthquake, like you see in Acts 16. Apostle Paul, they go through because of the, I'm not saying it was natural, but it was a common thing in that region. And AD 619, it destroys and levels the city. It will never recover. That's the city that Paul and his companions, coming, they are coming in not knowing what to do. They wanted to go up north in Turkey, but now they just crossed the sea and they are just following this highway. And the first city that they arrived is Philippi. What do you see here? What I see is God's providence. Philippi was in the centuries in the making from Macedonian king, father of a great Alexander the Great. But through all this Roman government and all of that is happening, and now Apostle Paul goes in and God has a plan. For what? God has his people in this city. Christian instinct, therefore, from the earliest accounts, is that we go into the city. Why are we here? How can we become a church? What brought you here? Your dreams, aspirations, or your, your jobs. Without this city, we wouldn't meet in this way. Apostle Paul doesn't go into the desert or go into the 
deep into the mountains and creates his own Christian nation. Oftentimes, it is God's providence that prepares a way. And it is just a commercial town, a secular city, 10,000 versus four people. What are the chances that that could, that could bring the gospel into 10,000 strong pagan city? But all that they are doing at this point is obeying God. And as you know, on the Sabbath day, the team goes to the riverside to find a place of prayer. And there were a group of women. So what do they do? What does Apostle Paul do? He preaches the gospel. There is no time for good social works. There is no cleaning up the streets, hoping that people will notice them. No, he just preaches the gospel. So I will be quick now. In that city, the real life situation, which is not too different from our own. God had his people, his chosen elect. We don't know yet. But you see the first woman, verse 14 and 15, Lydia. A woman named Lydia from the city of Tyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God was listening. The Lord opened the heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. Just her. Not the other ladies, but her. Verse 15. When she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. The first convert, Lydia, and Household baptized. As you know, seller of purple fabrics, expensive clothing. Maybe we could say Armani suits or something like that. So that lady is an independent lady, wealthy lady, free woman. Next thing that you notice is a slave girl, as you know. She will follow them and, and scream, oh, they are the servants of Most High God and Look at verse 16. It happened that as we were going to the place of, a, of prayer, a slave girl, girl having a spirit of divination met us. What is spirit of divination? Demon possessed. Fortune teller. It's a, it, Greek doesn't say slave girl, but a young girl who was bringing her masters much profit by fortune telling. Just like today. Just like any other times. These thugs would own her and use her for their own gain. Oh, here is a, here's a fortune teller. Uh, pay her and they take the money. Same thing, same wickedness 2,000 years ago. Verse 18, she continued doing this for many days. But Paul was greatly annoyed and turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out at that very moment. And when her master saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. And they would be thrown into the jail. That's why they go to jail. Now think about this. Once again, they don't have a plan. They go to a, trying to find a place of prayer. He preaches. Lydia, God's chosen person, responds to the message. Baptism, right away. And they were just going to a place of prayer again. But 
It was not their intention, but this girl will follow them. And he cast out demon out of her. Did she become a Christian? We don't know. When they were jailed, verse 26, suddenly there came a great earthquake. As you know. So, everyone's chains were unfastened. Verse 26. And jailer wants to kill himself because he thought everybody ran away. And he has to pay with his own life. But, what does Paul do? Paul cries out with a loud voice saying, Do not harm yourself for we are all here. And he called for lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And if they brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. And he took them that very hour of the night and washed their wounds. And immediately he was baptized, he and all his household. And he brought them into his house and set food before them and rejoiced greatly. Who? The jailer. Having believed in God with his whole household. To preview Philippians. Look at last verse, 1640. Now they are freed from that prison. Verse 40, chapter 16 ends with, with this verse. They went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia. And when they saw the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. We will assume then there was a house church at Lydia's house. Why? Probably she was why? Rich woman. Her house was able to host many people. But think about this, people. We don't know how long it took. A few days here, a few days there. But not too long. But they came to Philippi by the leading of the Holy Spirit. Lydia. Slave girl. I don't know if she became a believer or not. It would be reasonable to assume that. Where would she go? Now the jailer and his household. They will not mix together these group of people. Lydia. The slave girl. Demon possessed slave girl. And the jailer. They all come from different uh, social groups, economic groups. But in this city, the last verse says that church in the house of Lydia, the believers, the brethren were there, the converts were there, and I will assume Lydia, his, her household, jailer and his household, and Hopefully, this ex-slave girl will be there. Meeting regularly, at least once a week, breaking bread, eating together, listening to the teaching of the Word, praying together, praising together, and that's what the New Covenant Church looks like. In a Roman colony, 10,000 people, probably more. Four people just arrived. Now these people will have life together in Christ, for Christ. What else do you notice in verse 1 today? 
Paul and Timothy is writing to the saints in Philippi with the overseers and deacons. What does that mean? Church guru. Acts 16 was AD 49 to 51. The Philippian letter is traced to AD 62. So by the time they received this letter from Paul in Philippians, as you will see, about 10 years has passed, just like our church. And now, by the grace of God, they survived. Not only that, they grew because they include overseers in plural and deacons in plural. What a wonderful encouragement that is to us. How God is bringing these people together and in the almost similar situation as today. My hope in coming weeks is that today was just introduction. But my hope is that you and I will be able to see the book of Philippians as God writing to you and me living in this 21st century and giving his mind, unchanging mind and intention for us And I could only hope and pray that we could obey Him, remain faithful to Him just like this church. And our prayer would be that God build our church up just like this church by Your grace. Let us pray.